You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Throughout this past week, I wrote and then deleted several different introductions to this sermon. I wrestled with the weight of the topic and, and wondered how I could grab your attention to make sure you would understand the seriousness and the gravity of this text. In the end, here is what I want you to know as we begin. These are the words of Christ. These are the words of Christ. And you and I need to hear them as if he is pleading with us. Because he is. The pattern of our text mirrors what we studied last week. First, we will see a clear command. Verse 27 Then we will consider a sobering clarification, verse 28. Finally, we will conclude by examining a startling contrast, verses 29 and 30. Please hear the words of Jesus as he speaks to the crowd gathered on the ancient hillside and understand that these words are intended just as much for the crowd gathered in this room and those tuning in online. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. First, look with me at a clear command. Let me read verse 27 again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And then how does verse 28 begin? But I say to you. So a little bit of review. As we saw last week, Jesus follows a very specific pattern. We find it a total of six times in verses 21 through 48 of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus declares, you have heard it said, but I say to you. His aim in the statements that include this phrase is to push his listeners beyond merely keeping a list of rules. The original setting. You've heard about it. I'll I'll tell you again, Jesus is confronting the errant teaching of the religious elite, 
the Pharisees, who had turned the Old Testament law into a checklist of good and bad behaviors, whereby one could attain a standard of righteousness in their own strength, in their own ability. And this would then make them acceptable to God. Well, Jesus doesn't want there to be any confusion about the way into the kingdom of heaven. It is only through him. It is only through Christ and his perfect righteousness imputed to sinners by grace and through faith. This is the only way anyone will ever experience eternal peace with God. The Pharisees were confusing the gospel And so Jesus skillfully confronts them, and in so doing, he lovingly calls his followers to move past mere obedience to an external set of rules. And he implores them to examine their hearts, their desires, their cravings, their longings, their inner appetites. Now, before we look too intently at what Jesus says about the heart, let's make sure we understand verse 27. If we don't understand verse 27, and it's not complicated, we'll miss the rest of this text. Verse 27, again, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus quotes the seventh commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 14. The command itself is referring to a very specific and sinful act. When one who is married engages in sexual intercourse with one who is not their spouse. Friends, Jesus is quoting a divine commandment that still remains in effect. He is not dismissing this at all. Don't misunderstand. If you're married, if you're married, it is a sin. It is a sin for you to have sex with anyone other than your spouse. Most Christians know and understand this command. And therefore, most Christians wouldn't argue whether adultery is or isn't a sin. But for some that are here this morning or listening online, you you may not be fully convinced. So let me take a moment to explain why adultery is a sin. Biblically speaking, adultery has always been considered a grievous sin because of what God created marriage to be. God, in his infinite and perfect wisdom, chose marriage between one man and one woman to be the clearest earthly picture of his relationship to his people. Those purchased by the blood of Jesus. In fact, the church is called what? The bride of Christ. Not only is marriage a reflection of God's relationship with his people, but when God's people stray from him and pursue joy and satisfaction outside of him, when they give their worship to someone or something else, it is rightly described as spiritual adultery. In Ezekiel 16, Israel is referred to as an adulterous wife. In Hosea 4, verse 13, Israel's false worship is called adultery. And even in the New Testament, listen to what James says to those who have sinful affection for the world. 
you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, even in that brief explanation, we should be able to see something of the serious nature of the sin of adultery. God loves the church like a groom adores his bride. But when his bride pursues another lover, God condemns it as sin and calls it adultery. So brothers and sisters, while the dominant attitude in our society is lax and permissive toward adultery, may it never be so within the church of Jesus Christ. Culturally speaking, in an amazing number of ways, adultery is dressed up as something other than what it truly is. It masquerades as something honorable and desirable. It's cloaked in language of happiness and even salvation. We find ourselves cheering for the sweet woman in the movie whose husband is failing to love her well. We find ourselves hoping that she finds happiness in the arms of a man she is not married to. I fear that many of us, that many of us would be shocked to find out just how often we celebrate sin without even realizing what we're doing. We no longer view all of life through the lens of God's infinite and perfect holiness. We have been seduced, friends, to such a degree that we have begun to believe that relational and sexual happiness is the greatest good, and therefore it is to be pursued no matter what. Have we forgotten how serious the sin of adultery is? Russell Moore writes, Adultery isn't dangerous primarily because of its temporal consequences. These consequences are quite real, of course, and they are devastating. It is dangerous because it repudiates the gospel, molests the icon of Christ and his church, and forms another malevolent spiritual union that cannot be disentangled when the situation is left behind. Listen again to the words of Jesus as he rehearses this binding command. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is a sin. But like we talked about last week, adultery in many ways is simply the sinful act that makes visible the true and inordinate longings of the heart. This is precisely what Jesus says next. Following a clear command, Jesus offers a sobering clarification. A sobering clarification. Look with me at verse 28. 
Let's read verses 27 and 28 together so that you see this important construction again and hear it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Remember what we established last week. How did the Pharisees think? Well, the law says don't commit adultery. Okay, haven't done that. Haven't engaged in the actual act of adultery, so check that one off the list. I'm good. In response, Jesus says, hold on. I'm not concerned with mere obedience. I want to talk about your heart. About what's lurking beneath the surface. Now, in the kindness of God, most of you will never engage in the physical act of adultery. But what does Jesus say? Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To the one who would puff out his chest with a sense of spiritual arrogance because he has kept himself from the physical act of adultery, Jesus asks... But what about your heart? What are you thinking about? What are you longing for? What are you fantasizing about? To be direct, even if you never touch that attractive woman, men, Jesus is just as concerned with what you're doing with her in your mind. One theologian helps us understand more fully the language of verse 28 when he writes, Jesus offers a specific description of the lustful look that constitutes adultery of the heart. The look is not a fleeting glance that triggers a sexual thought that is then quickly dismissed from the mind. The look is a lingering look. The present participle could be translated, everyone who keeps looking. This is a sensual stare, a lustful gawking. Another commentator adds, this is not a prohibition of the normal attraction that exists between men and women, but the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours, which mentally contemplates and then commits adultery. Finally, one author adds this. The lustful look locks eyes on another person and uses him or her to fuel one's own sexual imagination. Friends, you get the idea. And the right response to Jesus' teaching is not for everyone here to join a monastery or a convent, but it is to be honest about sin. To be honest about the ways in which you are tempted and drawn away. 
And then to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ who alone can deliver you and satisfy your deepest longings. I want you to take your Bible again and turn to James chapter 1. We've flipped over to James a few times during this series and will several more. James chapter 1. Here we find the anatomy of sin. Look at verse 14 and then verse 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think James is illustrating well what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We live in a fallen world, and all those who are in Christ know, both theologically and experientially, that until we are with Christ, we will be and we are engaged in a battle, a, a battle that we all face, though we are each tempted and enticed in unique ways. The devil is crafty. He is cunning. He tailors his attacks to our particular weaknesses. You see, sin is a reality for everyone, but the precise way in which temptation manifests itself is not the same for everyone. The example Jesus gives uh, back in our primary text is, is of a man who looks on a woman and thinks sinful thoughts. This is something men in general struggle with, but it's only an illustration. It's just one example. Women are not immune to lust, but it usually manifests itself differently than it does in men. But notice again what James says. Each person, each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by by his or her own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Everyone here has sinful desires. And if you're a Christian, you cannot respond to this text with a dismissive or flippant attitude. Jesus is profoundly serious about this. And if you haven't picked that up yet, You will now, as we come to our final point, seen in verses 29 and 30, where we find a startling contrast. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Friends, if sin begins at the level of desire and longing, or as one theologian puts it, the heart is the locus in which sin originates. If this is true, then why does Jesus say, if your eye or hand causes you to sin. 
I believe Jesus singles out the eye and the hand because it is through the eye and the hand that one either accesses or acts on the lust conceived in the heart. When lustful thoughts enter the mind, it is through the eye that these thoughts are fueled and entertained. And it is with the hand or the physical body that action is taken. That's one observation. But I think Jesus is doing more here. He's also setting up a startling contrast. Notice the repetition of the word better. You'll find it in both verse 29 and verse 30. Here's the point. If the root cause of your sin was in fact your eye or your hand, then it would be better for you if you would tear out your eye or cut off your hand. It would be better to live without an eye or without a hand than to be cast into hell with both eyes and both hands. What I find so staggering about the contrast Jesus offers is not only the severity with which he views lust, but also the way he attacks the very essence of this sin. Sinful lust entices us with the promise that something forbidden is better than what God desires for us. To put it another way, sinful lust wants us to believe that forbidden sin is better than promised grace. Right? Think about it. The flirty attention I get from my coworker is more satisfying than my unaffectionate spouse. The escape of the fantasy novel is better than the difficulty of this real-life relationship. The illicit sexual rendezvous is better than the faithful love of lifelong marriage. The momentary pleasure of viewing pornography is more satisfying than a pure heart and a clear conscience. Sinful lust entices us with the promise of something better. But here is what Jesus says in response. I will tell you what's truly better. Beholding me and being with me in heaven. This is the startling contrast. And you can't have both. Pursue the seductive promise of something better and you will lose what is best. Give in to the sinful enticements of lust and you may very well lose heaven. Brothers and sisters, we must Fight the sinful lust that rages in our hearts because heaven and hell hang in the balance. This is what Jesus is communicating to us in verses 29 and 30. D.A. Carson writes, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, 
or seek to enjoy it just a little bit. We are to hate it, crush it, destroy it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Notice. Notice that just like Jesus, Paul makes the connection between lust and the wrath of God. This does not, this does not mean that anyone who experiences lust or sins sexually cannot be a Christian. It's not what this is saying. But Scripture does issue the sternest of all possible warnings. If you are not fighting lust, and if you're giving yourself over to sexual sin, even if it's only in your mind, then you need to be warned that you might be headed for hell. In John Piper's book called Future Grace, I want you to hear what he writes. It further explains and illustrate, illustrates this final point. Piper writes, this past September, I spoke to the student body of Wheaton Christian High School. I took as my topic, 10 lessons for fighting lust. Lesson number six was, ponder the eternal danger of lust. My text at, on that point was Matthew 5, 28 and 29, where Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I pointed out that Jesus said heaven and hell are at stake in what you do with your eyes and with the thoughts of your imagination. After the message, one of the students came up to me and asked, Are you saying, then, that a person can lose his salvation? This is exactly the same response, Piper writes, that I got a few years ago when I confronted a man about the adultery he was presently living in. I tried to understand his situation, and I pled with him to return to his wife. Then I said, you know, you know, Jesus says that if you don't fight this sin with the kind of seriousness that is willing to gouge out your own eye, you will go to hell and suffer there forever. He looked at me in utter disbelief as though he had never heard anything like this in his life. And he said, you mean you think a person can lose his salvation? So I have learned again and again, Piper concludes, from firsthand experience that there are many professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life and that nullifies the threats of the Bible and puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of biblical warnings. I believe this view of the Christian life is comforting thousands who are on the broad way that leads to destruction. Jesus said, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. 
Not that saints always succeed. The issue is that we resolve to fight. Not that we succeed flawlessly. But if we don't fight lust, we lose our soul. Brothers and sisters, according to Jesus, this is not a game. So let me offer a handful of pastoral exhortations as we close. One, understand your heart and guard it. Understand your heart and guard it. Pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Pursue it. Take effort. Run after it. Pursue satisfaction in Jesus Christ and all of his good gifts. One of the ways to fight lust and sexual temptation is to squeeze it out by filling your heart with the love of God for you in Jesus Christ. Fill your heart as well with with the good gifts that God gives. Beautiful art and music and the wonder of his creation. His living and active word, your faith family. Wholesome entertainment and healthy relationships. Playing with your kids and enjoying the love of your spouse. Be so satisfied in God that lust finds no room in your life to settle in. This is what I briefly mentioned last week. Thomas Chalmers is right. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Number two, Take radical action in your fight against lust. To to update the warnings of Jesus, if the eye and the hand are symbolic of ways we access, entertain, and act on sexual temptation, then what is the eye and the hand for you? A smartphone? Access to the internet in your home, Facebook, some other mobile app, the the movies you watch or the books and magazines you read. Now you may be thinking, come on, Jason. The smartphone and the internet are not the real problem. Right. Neither is the hand or the eye. But Jesus' words and his warnings are clear. And I think he would say to us today something like this. It would be better to live your life without the convenience of a smartphone than to be cast into hell clutching it in your hand. Three, parents, Engage your mind and guard the hearts of your children. There is a clear and concerted effort in our culture and by the devil to move our children on from innocence and naivety as quickly as possible. 
It is not overprotective to guard your children from spiritual danger. That is called love. You need to view every movie and TV show and magazine and app as a visitor that you're inviting into your home to influence your children. And as you wisely protect your children, prepare them. Prepare them by leading them to feast on the riches of the gospel so that they will be so satisfied with the rich food of God's grace that they will not wander off looking for something that promises to be better. Four, if you're a man or a woman who struggles with lust and sexual sin, please don't take another step down the path that leads to destruction without crying out to God and seeking help. Whoever you are, young or old, go to someone and ask them for help. Our hope and prayer is that if you're struggling with sexual sin, this church will be a place where you can find help. Where you won't be shamed and slandered, but you will be loved and served. Not by soft-pedaling the seriousness of sin, but by creating a culture of grace where people can find real help. Five, to those who claim the name of Christ, but you're not fighting lust. You're just living in willing submission to it, obeying its every command. If this is you, be warned. Consider the words of Jesus. You are deceiving yourself. Wake up and run to Jesus. Sixth and finally, to those who are presently in a raging battle with lust and temptation and you feel like you're losing, maybe even feeling hopeless and helpless. In a room this size, I have to believe there are many and no one knows a thing about this battle It feels like it's killing you. I want to encourage you as I close. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep fighting in the power of the Holy Spirit. God's grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. So weary brother or sister, cling to the promise of full and final victory in Christ. Remember what we sing together often. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Let's pray.